Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is the best kept secret in ufology. My guest is Jacques Vallée, a ufologist, a computer scientist, and a venture capitalist. He is the author of many books, including Passport to Magonia, The Invisible College, Messengers of Deception, Forbidden Science, which is an autobiography essentially in four volumes, Wonders in the Sky, Confrontations, a scientist's search for alien contact, Dimensions, a casebook of alien contact, Revelations, alien contact and human deception, as well as a novel called Stratagem, and his newest book, co-authored with Paolo Harris, is Trinity, the Best Kept Secret. Jacques is in France today, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Jacques. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's been many years since our previous interview. It's a long time since uh, the uh, SRI days and uh, the parapsychology days and all of that. It, it's true, but you've been consistently active amongst all your other interests. You've maintained your interest in, in the UFO field. And your new book, Trinity, written with Paulo Harris, is, uh, I guess you'd have to call it something of a breakthrough. It really changes our whole understanding of the history of modern ufology. The, the field has matured, and, and now the, the stigma has been removed. So I'm I'm very happy to have lived long enough to see that. As you know, many of uh, many of the people I've worked with, many of my my mentors, um, have not lived long enough to see that. I'm I'm happy that I was able to see this, and it's it's a real victory. Now we can talk, you know, more freely. Um, about some of the, the details of the really important cases. And the, the, the case at Trinity is remarkable for several reasons. It's remarkable on its own as a, you know, a, as an observation of an object that landed or fell on this, on that land. And the fact that it was observed for 10 days by by the witnesses who were there, and that we have now even more documentation in in the new um, uh, new edition of the book. It's also remarkable because the the witnesses never spoke, which is unique in the uh, the annals of of the field, and there are good reasons for that that are very interesting. And it's remarkable also because, as as you know, I've worked as you have uh, for a long time with people who had high clearances, with people who were studying parapsychology and so on, and had access to a lot of the data, and they've never heard of this case. And again, there are good reasons why that case was 
hidden for 70 years until accidentally it came to light and uh, Paula Harris and a couple of other people were interested enough to call the to call the witnesses and reconstruct what happened. Paola brought me into the case after her own investigations of three years. Um, and uh, I, I tried to bring, you know, the, 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 some of the science of uh, and the, the reinvestigation of uh, the situation in the light of everything else we know about uh, what the uh, what the military was doing at that at that point, what the military was doing at that point was, of course, testing, as I say, in quotes, uh, the first atom bomb. So uh, we are the location is 20 miles away from ground zero, um, you know, in uh, the state of New Mexico. Um, outside the, the the zone where the first atom bomb was exploded by Enrico Fermi and Oppenheimer and all these scientists. So the the, the other characteristic of the case is that it comes it comes at a time in history that is unique. And we we have been thinking seriously and you know a number of our friends have been thinking about what that could mean. Because the, the subject arrives out of nowhere, has not been detected by the radar from, uh, from the army. It's a unique time because there, there is no air force at the time. So it's not going to be in the air force files when Dr. Heineck, for example, becomes involved. I never heard Dr. Heineck mention this case. He didn't know about the case. It went, the case went into the archives of the Atomic Energy Commission. First of Project Manhattan, and 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 then of of the Atomic Secrets, and uh, the 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 case we know was classified as uh, higher than the, the atom bomb. So those are the things that we had to learn in writing the book, uh, Paola and I, and we're still discovering new witnesses who are adding to the understanding of, 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 of the case. And we're going to continue doing that. Well, not only did this uh, object appear around 20 miles from ground zero, as I recall, it was also about 20 days after the first atomic explosion. Yes, and it happened two days after the capitulation of Japan. And this... Uh, you know, I had to relearn or history or learn new history in writing this book. And this was the, the historical part of it was as emotional for me as it was, you know, meeting the our surviving witness, uh, Mr. Jose Padilla, uh, who was there as a kid uh, taking care of his family ranch when the object literally crashed uh, after hitting a communication tower. So the first witness was actually a bomber pilot who was Mr. Brody, B-R-O-T-H-Y, who was coming in for a landing at Alamogordo and was asked by the, the, the Alamogordo Tower to look at this communication system that had broken up. And he saw that the 
communication tower had been hit by something and was was bent. Uh, and then he saw the object in the brush uh, burning. Actually, it wasn't burning. The brush was burning, but the object was intact. And then he saw the two kids who were there with their horses. So the, the initial report to the army places everything at the site, which is remarkable. As you know, in the, in the case of Roswell, there was no live witness at the site. The site was discovered later, and they had to reconstruct the story. Here we have everybody at the site, uh, you know, at, at the first at, at the first instance, at the, fir- at the beginning. So what I had to relearn was, you, you know, I, I, I'm not much younger than our main witness, who is uh, 85 now. Uh, you know, I, I was born in 1939 at the beginning of World War II. My first five years of life were spent in uh, France that was controlled and occupied by Germany. And I remember the battles. I remember the bridges being destroyed in in our town. I remember our town was bombed 17 times. So I remember that that part of the war. I did not know much about the war in Japan. I thought after Hitler died, you know, the war was essentially finished. And that's not true. And the what I had to relearn about what continued on the Amer- on the American side with the the fight with uh, Japan, um, you know, was was really overwhelming, and and the conditions under which uh, Japan capitulated. Remember, there was no air force; there was uh, an U.S. Army Air Force. Of course, there were pilots and there were planes, but they were in army uniforms. Uh, there were no flying saucers. The term flying saucer is going to be invented two years later, 1947, by Kenneth Arnold. Um, you know, uh, of course, the, uh, there is no organization that keeps track of UFOs. The term UFO is going to be invented two years later by the U.S. Air Force. Okay, so we are at, at a time when there is no reference for the witnesses about something like this happening on their land. And they are going to be watching it as a recovery proceeds for the next 10 days. And in, in, in the book, you know, in, in, uh, in, in Trinity, we have reconstructed what happened day after day after day on that ranch as the army recovered the craft. The craft itself, as I recall, is you describe it as avocado-shaped. They, that's the name, the word they used. Of course, they speak Spanish. Uh, you know, most people in New Mexico spoke English or Spanish indifferently. They are from uh, Spanish-American families, Spanish-American Indian families, and um, the there is no flying saucer here. There is no disc. Uh, the 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 pattern that we've uh, studied is a pattern of this case in parallel with two other cases, 
that where we know pretty much everything from the witness point of view and the traces, as we do in the case of Trinity, the other two cases are Socorro, of course, uh, and uh, the case of Valençol in France in 1965, 20, 20 years after Trinity. In all three cases, the object is avocado-shaped or an oval or an egg-shaped. Um, in all three cases, we have creatures associated with it, forms of, of life. They are the size, uh, they are about three feet tall. They breathe our air. So, you know, the, you, you expect you know, a euphonaut from the faraway galaxy to have some sort of breathing equipment and so on. They don't. They breathe the air. They look human or humanoid. Um, and uh, in in this case, there are three um, of these creatures inside the, the ship, inside the craft. In the case of Socorro, of course, there are two. Uh, creatures on the ground outside the the, the object. Uh, Socorro is not a crash. The object landed in a place where I've been, and I had the the pleasure of uh, uh, taking uh, Dr. Paul Heineck there, the son of Dr. Heineck. We've we've gone back to that site, um, which was so you know historic in the study of of, of UFOs, and then I've also gone to Valençol and. Um, interviewed the, the 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 main witness. I know um, a lot about Valençol. Uh, in Valençol, there are again two creatures about three feet tall that not only looked at the witness but froze him on the spot, par- paralyzed him essentially until the the object could take off, and uh, he had the time to. Again, to, to look at, at many details. Uh, so in all three cases, uh, some objects have been described or recovered. And, uh, so we are continuing this investigation and we'll, we are bringing in several scientists into, into the study. The, the Socorro, New Mexico case, if I recall correctly, was 1964. Uh, or so? Yes. It was uh, eight miles due north of uh, Trinity. And a, a patrolman named Lonnie Zamora uh, heard heard a noise, uh, like thought that something may have, uh, there may have been an explosion in the desert, there was a, a munition shack in that direction, so he thought that there might have been some explosion. And he uh, drove off into the desert, which is not easy. I mean, I've, I've uh, experimented that myself with a, um, you'd better have a four wheel drive uh, car or a Jeep to, to go there. And he was confronted with essentially an oval object on four legs that left deep traces in the ground. Now, what's remarkable about Socorro and Valençol is that they were not investigated by amateurs, uh, although amateurs usually do a pretty good job. 
that they were investigated by official agencies of, uh, you know, the U.S. government in Socorro and the French government in Valenzo. Um, in Socorro, the first involved was the police, but there were three FBI agents who were in town who uh, joined the investigation to to bring help uh, securing the traces and so on, but they they had no jurisdiction to get into the case. It was a, a state uh, uh, inquiry, a state investigation. But the people from um, from White Sands uh, came into the investigation because initially they thought it might have been one of their devices. Uh, there were a lot of experiments going on at White Sands, uh, although no no nuclear experiment anymore. All the nuclear stuff had moved to Nevada by then. But they uh, they joined uh, to help the local police doing the investigation. So there were three different agencies. And, of course, the Air Force came in and eventually sent Dr. Heineck there. I was working closely with Dr. Heineck at the time. I was, you know, just uh, getting my PhD at Northwestern. And uh, I was working with him on astronomy, uh, astronomy uh, databases. And um, I followed the investigation, and we immediately, uh, as soon as he came back, took all the data he was bringing back to to help, you know, finalize the study of the traces and 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 the case. So um, in Valençal, again, uh, five different agencies of the French government led the study. Uh, the, the French. Air Force, French intelligence, the gendarmerie, and initially the local police when uh, the, the men uh, made his first report. The witness in Valençal is highly regarded in, in, the, in the area. He's a, a, a businessman and a farmer in the area, uh, well-recognized, um, well-respected as a as a fighter during the resistance during the during the war, so he was not someone who was intimidated, or, you know, by what he saw. Uh, he was deeply, deeply affected by the consequences in his own mind of what he had gone through. And and again, as in many of the cases of close encounters, the the human element there is is very powerful, very deep, and, you know, has to be analyzed also from the point of view of, of psychic research, you know, of the, in, in all those cases. Well, one of the interesting things to me about the Socorro case is that it was investigated by Ray Stanford. You report on Ray Stanford's involvement, and he's a, a very interesting figure because he was also a you know, something of a UFO contactee himself uh, as a teenager, and and also developed a, a career as a uh, psychic, as a channeler, and uh, a ufologist, and has recently uh, achieved a lot of publicity in the field of paleontology. Uh, I regard Ray Stanford as a most interesting figure in, in the history of all of this. Well, he was, uh, in, in that case, he became, uh, you know, a research assistant or a research associate of Dr. Heineck. 
and uh, gathered a, a number of um, evidential data uh, that's very useful that we've picked up and and reproduced with his permission, of course, in 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 our book. Um, the the data is very rich. Uh, it's very interesting to have these two investigators, Dr. Heineck and Ray Stanford, uh, jointly, but from different point of, points of view. One was official, of course, Dr. Heineck was there on behalf of Project Blue Book, um, on behalf of the Air Force, and, and Ray Stanford was interviewing people and was running as a uh, as a private investigator, so to speak, in the uh, around the area, and picked up some very interesting traces that were, well, let, let's say, uh, confiscated um, in after a series of lies that were and promises that were made to him uh, by uh, some government services, including people at NASA, but the people at NASA were not really the guilty ones. Uh, there were other people who came on top of NASA, confiscated the samples that um, that Ray Stanford had gathered at the site and uh, took took those samples into uh, in, into classified areas. So that that whole part of the investigation leaves a strange taste in in your mouth when you think about the way witnesses were treated, uh, in the way there was ridicule. And of course, now we are told that all this is now going to be open and the, you know, the, the investigation will, will not be subject to ridicule in future cases. We still have, we have yet to see that. Well, it certainly suggests that at least as far back as 1964 and maybe as far back as 1945 that uh, some part of the bureaucracy, whether it's government or corporate or some combination thereof, has has been investigating the UFO phenomena uh, very secretly. Yes, and in the case of... Uh... The, the traces that were picked up, um, uh, some of it is available. I mean, I have some of the, some of the material that we're going to, to, to study. As you may know, I, I've been working, you know, for the last few years with, um, Dr. Gary Nolan at Stanford and, and, uh, other people who have volunteered to, to help in, in that study. Um, I'm not, you know, trained in material science. It's a, it's, it's a complex area. And, uh, but I, I think between, you know, among our group, we've already made some, some interesting progress in, in, in that area. And we have a number of, of, of samples that we continue to study. Uh, the, but we, we know, uh, now through various, um, Channels where that uh, that particular uh, piece of of metal it, it's really an alloy that's very very high technology uh, very interesting alloy that you wouldn't expect to pick up 
on the ground, uh, you know, uh, outside the, the little town like Socorro in New Mexico. And uh, we know pretty much where it went. Uh, and uh, we also know some of the results. And so um, th- the truth comes out little by little, but it's clear that there were people who were uh, definitely investigating UFOs, you know, while uh, the, the the message to the public was, you know, there is nothing to see here, you know, go away. And uh, this is all dreams and imagination and drunken cowboys. Well, since you mentioned Dr. Gary Nolan at Stanford University, uh, you're probably aware, I think, that in the last week or so, he's made a public statement that uh, he expects very soon there will be major revelations about uh, UFO phenomenon, that he's been in touch with people who have been involved in uh, deep Uh, embedded secret organizations in the government, and he says they're ready to go public. And and in fact, I just heard a couple of days ago of a conference taking place in a few weeks at Stanford University, and and the subject of the conference is alien technology and how we can integrate it into our uh, corporate structure. You know, there is a lot of pent-up demand for something to be done. Uh, I cannot speak for, for Gary. I think, uh, you know, he certainly has uh, made a, a major impact on thinking of a number of people in science. Uh, the, uh, I'm, I'm hoping that we're going to see a, a change. Um, I wonder um, you know, as, as long as the subject didn't exist, people like me could freely go around, talk to witnesses, investigate cases, you know, publish whatever we wanted to publish and so on. The moment it becomes important, I mean, if you followed the, the congressional hearings a few months ago, the, it has to be considered not only as an important subject in science, but potentially as a threat to national security, which means that it probably has to be classified. So, uh, ironically, the fact that the subject is now admitted to be real, that the witnesses are not lying, that these things are happening, that we don't know what they are, may mean that part of the study, part of the investigation, is going to be more classified than before. And that's not something that people have really thought about. You know, people think disclosure, you know, everything will be, we are going to be told everything. Well, the problem is that nobody really has a solution for this. I mean, you know, it was easy to brush it off as, we don't have enough data. We, the, the, the witnesses don't remember all the details. Uh, we don't have good photographs, which is, you know, all of which is true. So we had all these excuses for not most people going on with their lives, not paying much attention to this. Now, um, you know, it's different. Um, so the, 
you know, as you may know, I've been part of a couple of studies that were classified. I was called in as a computer scientist to design an analysis of data databases, actually a data warehouse that we built under the Bigelow Aerospace Space Science Project, which has been re renamed ATIP, you know, within the, the Pentagon uh, nomenclature. Um, to my knowledge, that uh, that study is still classified and, and, and properly classified, I should say. I mean, I'm not, you know, because so much of our data, which came from all over the world, uh, you know, 260,000 cases in the same structure in English, Okay, with a fairly sophisticated structure that was built so that we could build an AI component on top of it. That's the, today it's a high watermark in terms of computer science being applied to UFO databases. As you know, I started building files and databases when, when I was working with Dr. Heineck at Northwestern. So, you know, back in 1964. Okay. So, the the problem is that it contains a lot of personal information about witnesses that you know it it may be okay in a file of you know a private file of an amateur group or a civilian group but uh you know not not in a file that is part of a, a federal study so uh, there there is medical information there is personal information all of that will have to be uh, sanitized before it could be turned over to to scientists. And I'm hoping, of course, that that will happen. There is no no reason why it should remain classified, as far as I know. But um, you know, I was proud of being part of that study um, with uh, a, a number of uh, research. Um, Ventures that were done uh, during that that uh, that uh, period that still have to see the light of day. And I I think those were major contributions. So I hope they will be public at some point and can be used in turn within you know uh, an academic setting. But we're not there yet. Yeah. Well, let's go back to the uh, crash at the Trinity site before we get too far ahead of ourselves. Uh, I think uh, you, you indicated that it took the government about 10 days to actually, that to build a road to go to the crash site, bring in heavy equipment, and, and they took that vehicle or craft out with them. So it's been in the hands of some government or quasi-government agency since 1945? What happened was, uh, and we've reconstructed with Paola and with uh, Mr. Padilla, we've reconstructed what happened on each day. So there's a table in the book that shows the temperature, the rainfall, the, you know, the weather in New Mexico at the time, at the time which was well known because there are a number of, uh, of course, weather stations, including the ones that the army was ma- was maintaining around the nuclear site. So we we have all that information and we know what the 
what the kids were doing, we know what the army was doing, and so on. Then the first thing that happens is that the the, the kids go home after being stunned by what they see. They they know, uh, you know, this is still in the atmosphere of war. They are still in the shops and so on. There are posters that say, if you see something, you say nothing. Okay, this is ingrained in their mind. Uh, so they, they are going to report it to uh, Mr. Padilla's father, who immediately calls the state police. The state police is going to show up a couple of days later, and the the kids uh, lead the, the the policeman and the father to the site. The the two adults go inside the object. The the small creatures are no longer there. We speculate with Paola that probably the the army had sent a patrol right there immediately to make to see what what had fallen there and to clean up the site so when when the kids go back there one day has passed uh when there was nobody on the site and and now they see that the the the, the site has been altered somebody has been there probably the army and they've they've done some clean up and the object is there one panel is missing from the hit against the communication tower and uh they can see inside the the two adults go inside when they come out they have a change of attitude uh, as the kids describe it they uh they tell the kids look nobody talks about that ever this is not for our family this is not for us you don't talk in school to other kids. Uh, let the army handle it. This is way beyond what we should do. And um, they, the next day, of course, the kids are going to be there. They are watching the cattle. Those two kids are very bright. I mean, the kids were growing up quickly during the war. They were, you know, they were in an environment. There was no there was very little playing. I mean, things were serious. Many of the adults were at either in Germany or on the in the Pacific on ships and so on. The, the, there had been deaths all, all around. So they, this is very serious to them. And that's why they will not, at the time of Roswell, they are not going to come up and talk to the press or reveal what they've seen. It's going to remain a family secret. For a long time, the, um, the sergeant arrives. Um, of course, there is a fence around the ranch. Um, an officer arrives at the at the home of Mr. Padilla, the father, Faustino Padilla, and says, uh, "Señor, uh, tenemos que ir a su uh, rancho. Uh, we have to go to your land, uh, to your ranch." because we have lost one of our weather balloons. Of course, the officer spoke Spanish. And that's that's one thing that I've read a number of books, you know. In, I mean, you study physics. I mean, there is no way to avoid studying Trinity and, you know, the atom bomb and that whole story. 
and and the careers of people like Oppenheimer and uh, you know and and the other luminaries of of science who were there at the Trinity site. So uh, all of them spoke English, and then after the war they went back to Princeton or Chicago and so on to teach physics. The population there spoke mostly Spanish, so. Um, the officers, uh, the army officers were, were part, uh, uh, Mexican, Mexican American. They spoke Spanish. And so the, he's asking permission to cut the fence. Uh, Mr. Padilla says, why do you need to cut my fence? I mean, the, there is a perfectly good gate there for the cattle, you know, to, for the truck carrying the cattle to go in and out. And the officer says, uh, no, senor, the, we need a real large truck to pick up our weather balloon. So we're going to build a big gate and we're going to build a road on your property to go get the weather balloon, our experimental weather balloon. The father says, if you want, you know, weather balloons, you launch weather balloons all the time from White Sands, and a lot of them land on my ranch, and I pick them up for you, so uh, I'm going to go get them. So he goes into the back room, he comes back with an armful of weather balloons that he has carefully folded to return them to the army. I mean, everybody knew you had to help the army as much as you could. And the uh, the officer says, no, uh, uh, it's a different kind of weather balloon. So they cut the gate, they put in, you know, a new gate, they bring in a truck. And here, you know, there was a funny uh, episode because I almost had, had a fight with with Paola. Uh, you know, Paola Harris said, why do you want to go back and ask Mr. Padilla about the truck? I mean, you know, it's an army truck. I said, yes, but the number of wheels on that truck is going to tell me the weight of the avocado, you know, and we're going to find out if it's a weather balloon. And um, they brought in one of the of the big army trucks that could carry two tanks. You know, the, the, the this was a truck with a big tractor, and behind the tractor was what they called a low boy that could be lowered close to the ground to load tanks. So this is... This gives us an estimate of the weight of of the and there are other factors the the weight of the the object the object was the size of two trucks it was about fifteen feet high and you know very very large um, egg shaped or avocado shaped and it must have weighed between two and f- and four tons if you remember the estimate of the object at Socorro. Uh, by several people, including the army, uh, was five tons from from the traces that it left. It left deep traces uh, in in the in the ground at Socorro. So again, that eliminates the idea that this was a hoax, that somebody was playing a joke on Project Manhattan. Well, you know, you wouldn't want to play a joke on a group of people who had just exploded the first atomic bomb. Um, you know, two days after the capitulation of Japan. Uh, so, and again, the coincidence or the comparison with the, the, these three cases, and again, 
here I'm thinking as a an information scientist isn't going to think in terms of one case at a time. You're going to think in terms of patterns. And here the pattern is at least three cases where we have the same type of craft, the same type of occupant, the the same type of materials that were being recovered, you know, and um, and those are among the best studied cases, the most intensely stated cases by government agencies, you know, in the whole history of the phenomenon. So I think that's what the book is all about. You mention in the book that the children describe the uh, short humanoid-like creatures. I think the Spanish word was something like machacampa, meaning uh, praying mantis. They compare them, and you know, I had the privilege of being able to work from the first recordings that uh, that Paula Harris did with both of the witnesses. By the time I got involved, Remy Baca had died, but Remy Baca was alive when, when uh, Paola first became involved. So we have separate recordings, long recordings of both of them separately. And uh, both of them, when they talk about, and I've had some experience analyzing transcripts of, you know, when I was working on the early internet and, you know, as you remember, uh, we did some experiments together in, in parapsychology using the, the networks and so on. They, uh, analyzing the transcripts from, uh, those conversations. And it's very interesting because both of them speak in, in the past. You know, we went there, we saw this. It was like this, always in the past and you know, in a tense. But then, when they are close to it, they jump to the present all of a sudden. It's as if all of a sudden they are there and they say, they do this, they, they walk, they change, you know, and they, they look, the little men, you know, are, seem to be in, in distress and so on. And, and then they say the creatures. And I, I tried to pin down Mr. Padilla about this. I said, Sometimes you, you talk to them as, as if they were little men. They were about your size. I mean, you know, a nine year old kid. Uh, they were a little over three feet tall. So as we can tell, uh, and they look human. I mean, they had two eyes and a small nose, a small mouth. Uh, they breathed our air, but then you talk to them as if they were insects, you know, compromise, uh, and they use all these terms to describe insects in Spanish. Well, um, he told me, well, you know, there were some aspects of them that were not completely human. That, and we were, we were afraid and we wanted to help them because we knew when you were in front of an accident in an isolated area, remember they are 10 miles from the nearest place where they could even call a doctor. Okay. So they, they know that they are the first responders. They have to be there and bring assistance. The Mr. Padilla, the nine year old, uh, Jose wanted to go in and help the occupants, the creatures. Uh, 
and um, Remy Banka was seven uh, seven years old, you know, two years younger, was in distress. He was crying. He said, well, you know, you go there if you want to. There's no way I'm going to go there. And finally, they they just stayed frozen at the place, you know, watching those creatures go back and forth inside the object. They never stepped outside and being fascinated with what they saw and really unable to 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 do anything. So there were those two aspects that, yes, they were little men. They related to them as little men, but there were some some aspects of them that that scared them and they told them this is not this is not normal at all. And they watched while the army loaded that vehicle onto the truck. And I gather they also picked up a few souvenirs themselves. The word souvenir here is is very interesting. I asked Mr. Padilla, why do you want to go inside that object? And he said, I wanted to go in and pick up a souvenir. And, you know, so far, the witnesses have spoken English or Spanish. I know a little Spanish, so I can follow, you know, most of that. But souvenir is a French word. What is it doing in the middle of New Mexico you know, when we're talking about a crashed UFO, essentially. And he said, well, souvenir, you know, there were many people in our families who were not coming back from the front. They were not coming back from the Pacific, or they were not coming back from Germany. And we had to have something to remember them by. And we it could be an object, a piece of clothing. It could be uh, a pipe. It could be a pair of glasses. That's what we called a souvenir. And, you know, in doing this, at, in placing yourself in the time, you would hit those moments that were so precious, but to me were so, were also, you know, emotional because you, this was serious. I mean, this was, this touched their lives, you know. And in the, the last witness that we found that, you know, is, is now in the book, it, the first thing you need to talk about was the deaths in his family, the children who died of radiation, you know, all the, and, you know, before we could talk about what he had seen at the site and so on, he brought up the pictures of the young kids who died because of the radiation left by the explosion of the bomb. The history books and and the physics books that I read and studied say that there was a test at Trinity. Trinity was a test of the first atom bomb. Well, when you do a test in physics, you know, you, you, you take a, a glass and there's some liquid and you put some chemical in it and you observe some reaction. And if it works, you get a patent or you, you know, you build a larger experiment. You cannot do that with an atom bomb. You know, it, it, either it works or it doesn't. Many physicists thought the bomb would never work. You know, it was the, the, the genius of Enrico Fermi, Oppenheimer and their team that designed, uh, you know, uh, uh, the explosion principle of actually two bombs, you know, one 
One was a, a uranium bomb, the other one was a plutonium bomb. The, the plutonium bomb was the one that was, quote, tested. But it had, when you, when you look at the, the power, it had the same power as the, the bomb that was, uh, launched on Nagasaki, you know, uh, an estimate of 19 kilotons that destroyed the town of Nagasaki. You couldn't make a small atom bomb. So it, it had the same power as the bomb. And one thing that I found, we, we went to the, to the, to the test site itself when it was open and we got some brochures from the army that are not in most libraries and so on. In the, in the army brochure, which is only about 10 pages describing the, you know, the building of the bomb at, for Project Manhattan, they say that following the test at Trinity, they changed the altitude where the bomb would blow up because they realized that there was too much radioactivity left at the site. The radioactivity is not why you build the bomb. You know, the, the, you build the, the bomb, the destructive power of the bomb is in the power of the explosion and the wind that will destroy any structures within, you know, a, a fairly wide radius. Of course, we have much bigger bombs now, but they, they didn't think of the, 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 the impact of the radioactivity at the site. So the, the two bombs that were dropped on Japan were recalibrated to blow up at 2000 feet up in the air and not at, at, at ground zero. And I had never, I don't think people know that. I, I don't think physicists know that. I don't think it's in any history books. You know, it's in the army brochures. Uh, and you know, it's to the, to the credit of, of the army that they, they realized that they should try to minimize as much as possible the, the radioactive impact the, that devastated that part of New Mexico. Enrico Fermi, at the time of the explosion, watching the explosion, computed the, the power and found that it was four times more powerful than the, what the calculations indicated. You indicated in your book that not all of the plutonium that went into that bomb that was exploded at Trinity was actually ignited in the nuclear reaction. A good deal of it was scattered uh, throughout uh, the country. I think you indicated maybe over a, a range of 100 miles or so. A lot of the unspent plutonium was showered over a wide area of New Mexico where there were people living. And the the wind, uh, we, again, we reconstructed the, 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 the trajectory of the wind after the, the Trinity explosion, the wind would have taken the cloud, the radioactive cloud, north, uh, initially north, northeast, and then turned to the west and went over the area where those kids were living. So, um, no wonder, you know, there was such an impact. Um, Mr. Padilla heard the explosion and had bleeding in his ear and was after that, you know, his was uh, had a, uh, a punctured uh, ear uh, for the rest of his life. 
His mother went blind in one eye when she saw the explosion. And so the, the devastation was profound. And you can, you know, you can excuse the, the initial secret because, well, for a number of, you know, of, of strategic reasons, it had to be secret until they knew that they had a weapon that could terminate the war. But after that, you know, as many people say, no, uh, you know, why didn't they tell us? Why didn't they tell us not to drink the water, you know, on the reservoirs? Why didn't they tell us to slaughter the cattle, not not take it to the market, you know? And the, all those things people are still talking about now. And Paula and I have, you know, been you know, fairly powerfully affected by what we heard in those conversations. We decided to give... Uh, a percentage of the proceeds of the book to an organization that is coming to the help of survivors of of the atom bomb and all the sequelae, which continue in New Mexico in that area. There were 60,000 people, you know, within the wide area that were exposed to the to the explosion and to the sequelae of the explosion. Well, you raise a very interesting parallel in your book. Uh, you ask, uh, as many people probably did, how could it be that uh, some civilization from some distant location is is so advanced that they can build a craft that would come to uh, our planet and uh, and then crash? It seemed as if that, that was ironic. But you uh, compare that to the way we treated our own people uh, at the time of the Trinity explosion? It's, uh, maybe it wasn't the crash. Maybe it was designed to do a, a hard landing and to maybe it was uh, some sort of a gift um, in the shape of a warning also. And, you know, I, I'm not uh, enough of a historian of that period to know what the the impact would have been in different countries and so on. Um, the the army, contrary to what people think, many people in the army, including General Eisenhower and General Sherman and other generals, did not want to use the atom bomb. They they wanted to finish the war with a conventional battle. The the Pentagon had ordered. 500,000 Purple Hearts in anticipation of the final battle in Japan. Japan had built fortifications in the north of Japan. They expected the Russians to invade Japan from the north, rearmed by us, rearmed by the United States. And um, the Stalin had, uh, of course, you know, Berlin and, and Germany was finished. The Red Army was sweeping through Manchuria and China, ready to attack Japan from the north. The American fleet of the Pacific, which at the time had a hundred aircraft carriers, a hundred aircraft carriers. Some of them were just old ships that had been with a flat bed on top, you know, to, to have a maximum number of, of planes available. But, you know, those are in the records that we have studied. And the, so the, the, the fleet was going to 
to help in the invasion of Japan from the north. The, the Japanese were not, the army in Japan was not ready to surrender. It was, you know, the, the emperor who decided by himself that he would not submit his people to that final battle, which would have been, you know, the, the largest battle equivalent to the, the Normandy invasion, you know, uh, would happen again in the north of Japan. And in studying the books, the history books that have been published in the last five years, you know, about all that, now that all the archives are open and can be studied uh, by, you know, academics, you, you realize what, what the impact would have been and, and why uh, President Truman made the decision to use a vote um, against the advice of some of his uh, greatest generals. And um, we haven't used the atom bomb since then. You know, Russia uh, was known to be working on the bomb. Um, we, it was clear that eventually other countries would have it. You know, the UK, France, Israel... Uh, and eventually China would have the bomb. And that is, that was a reason, you know, when John Eisenhower went to see Mr. Truman, uh, said, you know, we're going to change the nature of war. It's going to be completely out of control. And we, we will not be able to have a, you know, conventional solution, armed solution to conflicts. Uh, you know, history is going to be in a different regime. Well, why is it? It must have been very tempting to use the war, to use the bomb during uh, the, the wars in the last 50 years, and it wasn't. Could Trinity have played a role? Could could that have been taken as a warning? Well, we know that there have been conversations, classified conversations at the highest levels, within, you know, between the different countries about the UFOs and about, of course, nuclear weapons. Those conversations go on all the time at the top level. Could that have been a factor? You know, I, I, I don't know. We have to leave that to, uh, to historians and to, you know, people in, uh, people in those levels of the government. Back to the, Trinity crash itself and and the idea of souvenirs. Uh, I also want to introduce uh, at this point the book by Philip Corso, The Day After Roswell, in, in which he intimated that his role at, at the time, being part of military intelligence, was, was to collect some of the um, artifacts from UFO crashes and, and see if uh, they could be analyzed and maybe even used by uh, corporations. And you report extensively that after this crash at Trinity, the children on the ground, including their father, found large amounts of of what might appear to be fiberglass or fiber optic-like cables uh, that they use for Christmas tree decorations. Yes. Uh well, you know, that's what you do with uh, extraterrestrial material. You, you put it on the Christmas tree, right? I mean, everybody, everybody knows that. 
Well, the 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 kids at at the time of the impact of the object on the tower, one panel was broken up, and as a result of it breaking up, the 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 ground was covered with these fibers. The the kids were very intrigued with it because the fibers, when you when you took them to a dark place. The fibers glowed with different colors. Now, uh, I, I've met with uh, Canon Corso. As you know, uh, Paula Harris has published a book of conversations with Canon Corso when he was in Italy and he could speak freely. Uh, his English book, um, you know, was sanitized by different people who didn't want certain things to be to be published. And he was, um, uh, in fact, very, very angry at, at that and at, at his publisher for sanitizing his report. But in his Italian book and his books outside the U.S., he was free to go into more details. Well, he mentions that he was, uh, he had the job after the war of, uh, gathering those uh, materials and uh, turning them over to different uh, to different laboratories that were under classified contracts with the army uh, to to study the materials and see if they could be applied in some way and, and could be useful either in in commerce or could be useful to the military. And, so I, I spent a couple of days uh, the, uh, when under the project of Mr. Bigelow in Las Vegas, we we invited uh, Colonel Corso to speak to us, and we we had uh, a chance to interview him at length. Also, I, I met him in on two different occasions, but there in Las Vegas, we had two days with him, and I had a chance to have a private conversation with him, and I. I, you know, I, I raised the question of those fibers because I, I told him, look, Colonel, uh, you describe this as fiber optics, but we, fiber optics doesn't glow you know, different colors on the length of the fiber. I mean, you, you put a, a particular a sine wave or a particular signal at one end, it comes out at the other carried by the light through the glass. But it doesn't, it doesn't glow along the, along the length of the fiber. And so what, what you picked up at Trinity and other places was something different. And he, he agreed with me that you could, you cannot call it really fiber optic. It was, uh, it was an optical effect. The kids were fascinated with it because it glowed in all these different colors. As we know, uh, uh, Paola found a later witness, Sabrina Padilla, who grew up on the ranch a few years after the crash. And she remembers her grandfather uh, studying pieces of material that he had picked up after the army was gone, after the, the object was taken away. There was still a lot of stuff in the bushes. And the, some of that stuff actually was that the fiber you indicate, the, the type of fiber that glowed 
And she described it. And she also said, you shouldn't really play with that very much because it hurts your, le- your, your fingers. It hurts your, your hands. Okay. So we've, we've been studying those records with uh, a number of, of scientists, uh, you know, on, on our team and trying to make, trying to make sense of, uh, all the materials that were found in connection with, uh, with the crash at Trinity. And as I recall, she indicated that her her grandfather, which would be Jose Padilla's father, had uh, had collected a whole gunny sack full of this fiber. And the the two kids uh, gave it to uh, people in the neighborhood to put on on the Christmas trees. And you know, in those days, uh, uh, there were there wasn't the all the Christmas ornaments that. We have now by the thousands and so on, glowing things. And in, in many of those um, houses, uh, you know, the, the electrical system was somewhat primitive. At the Padilla household, you know, the, the bedrooms didn't have electricity. So uh, the, it was fascinating for the kids to have these, uh, these fibers that, that glowed by themselves in different colors. Also, if if I recall correctly, uh, uh, one of the children, I forget which, Reme or Jose, uh, went into the craft and pulled out a, a piece of metal uh, that had been there and kept it as, I think, what they called a treasure. They, they called it uh, a souvenir and they called it the tesoro, the, the treasure, because to them it was just so, such an incredible Thing, uh, it is, uh, and Mr. Padilla uh, donated it to me to, to take it to different labs, and I have done that, and it's still under under study. So far, and also other people had done had already done studies. Uh, uh, Remy Baca had taken it to Los Alamos, where friends of his had done an analysis. Um, as far as we can tell, it's a human object. It's a bracket, the kind of bracket you would find in a, um, maybe not in a windmill, but maybe in a water mill or in, in, in a farm device where you need to transmit, um, you know, rotating motion into different other kinds of, of motion. For example, opening veins or you know, triggering other, uh, other, uh, action within the machine. And so there, there are many, many forms of that kind of device. I think, and other people disagree with me, and that's fair, but I, I think the army brought it there and, and put it on the wall, probably to wrap up a cable, an electrical cable. It may have served for other things as well. Maybe to generate, to help generate power, but it's a kind of improvised piece of equipment that the army is very good at, you know, when they are in the middle of nowhere. Now, uh, they would have had power at the site because I, I used to drive a Jeep, you know, years ago, and I know a Jeep can generate power. Uh, if you're in an isolated area and you need a light or you need a, a motor, you can you can hook it up to the jeep 
then you'll have electrical power. And so it's a reliable source of power, and they may have needed to work there at night, and they may have needed to to have a light inside the object. Anyway, uh, Jose Padilla, Mr. Padilla, who is, you know, our, our live witness today, uh, recalls crawling into the craft uh, on the last day. The craft was on its side on the low boy, on the truck. The reason it was on its side is that otherwise it couldn't go under the overpass, uh, you know, of the... Uh, you know, the American highway that's just a few miles away. And so it, it could, it would have hurt the, the bridge of the overpass. So it's on the side and, you know, a uh, nine year old kid is going to crawl in to see what's inside. Uh, all the, the soldiers have gone nearby to have a bite to eat before they, they drive at night. They are going to drive the truck covered with a tarp, but the tarp is open and the kid goes in and he pops out. He has a, a wrench, you know, that he uses to pop out that, that bracket and that bracket they kept as a treasure. They uh, were able to hide it from everybody for many years. They actually didn't quite remember where it was for a while and they found it again. Uh, because the uh, Mr. Baca, Remy Baca, borrowed it from uh, Jose Padilla to have it tested at Los Alamos. So we have the results of a series of tests, and then we've done our own tests of it. There is no question it's human. It's uh, an alloy of aluminum called silumin, which is uh, stronger than aluminum, that was, in fact, used in the 40s, uh, in, in a number of applications. So it's, it was fairly easy to manufacture an object out of it. It's not high tech. You know, the, the lab at a college or high school would have had the necessary equipment to make a mold and, and, and make uh, that uh, aluminum object. Well, just when you think you have a neat pad answer that this is a human-made object uh, that the Army put into the UFO, there's this other story about the, uh, if I recall correctly, a shepherd who who had been sleeping in a in a shack or a barn or something where they had hidden this object, who was disturbed at night by small creatures who apparently had come to find it. Uh, again, he was an itinerant worker who took care of, of the sheep. He was a sheep herder and uh, that the farm or ranch would call at the time when the sheep are going to be taken to be slaughtered. And um, he's uh, sleeping in this little shack, has heard nothing about the story. Um the, the children have not, of course, not spoken to him about what they saw. In the middle of the night, he's awakened by um, small um, diminutive men who are in in that little shack with him. And they apparently point to an area where the object has been buried. The The man doesn't know that the kids have buried it there to hide it, to make make sure that nobody nobody knows where it is. 
neither the military nor the, the family, because they want to keep it. It's their secret. It's their, their link to the, the reality of what they've seen. And um, he's frightened, of course, by these creatures, has no idea why they are there. There is a big light outside from an object that's somewhere, you know, in, in the brush. Um, of course, he picks up his gun and, uh, and the, the creatures disappear and or go away. That's, again, the kind of thing that illustrates, you know, the complexity of a case, of a case like that. You know, it, uh, uh, there are stories like that in Valençol that I know about, but they have, that have not been reported officially at any time because the people there wanted to keep the secret. And, you know, we have the illusion and many scientists have this delusion that if something happens, they can go there and interview the witnesses and gather the, the report. Well, up to a point, that's true. But it's very clear that in many cases, the witnesses are going to only give you part of the story unless you can gain their confidence. And in in the case of Trinity, Paola and I were uh, proud to have been able to gain the confidence of the witnesses because they know that we're serious about this and we've invested a big part of our lives studying this and trying to understand the mystery. And that creates a bond with the, the witnesses. That's not going to be the case if you just come from Stanford or you come from Princeton and, you know, with a questionnaire and you ask somebody to fill out, you know, fill, answer questions A, B, and C, and D. You know, that's not the way you're going to learn what really happened. As I recall from your book, The Sheep Herder, uh, came to, I think it was uh, Mr. Padilla, Jose Padilla's father, and, and, and said, I'm never going to go back to that shack again because of what happened. Again, they speak Spanish. And he says, uh, you know, I cannot work for you again because there are too many strange things around here. And um, so he and the father doesn't know about the little creatures. And the sheep herder, again, the, at that point, there is also a religious connotation. You know, when Dr. Heineck interviewed um Officer Zamora, Rodney Zamora did not want to speak to Dr. Heineck until he had gone to church to confession and spoken to the priest about what he had seen because he was troubled. Remember, he hadn't slept that night. He was deeply troubled by the two creatures that he had seen because he knew this wasn't quite human. They they looked kind of human. There had been an exchange visually with them. No, they had looked directly at, at him. And and then they went into the craft and the thing took off. And he 
he wanted to speak to the priest before he would speak to Dr. Heineck. No, this is not superficial. This isn't just, you know, like a, 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 an ordinary car accident or something like that. It's something that had a deep impact on the witnesses. And you, throughout your career, I remember first hearing you speak about this, Jacques, I think in 1972, uh, you've always emphasized the uh, spiritual and uh, paranormal aspects of uh, the phenomenon, that there's a... Uh, a part of what's going on that really defies all of our conventional ways of interpreting what's happening. That cannot be ignored. And it comes out whether, you know, whether you like it or not, it comes out in the testimony. For example, in Valençon, the, the witness for a while couldn't sleep. And then he would sleep during the day. He would sleep you know, 20 hours out of the day. And he, he couldn't, uh, and again, the, the, the impact on the consciousness of people is part of the, part of the, the story. And it cannot be ignored. Um, uh, both uh, Mr. Padilla and Mr. Baca had horrible dreams, recurring dreams for several years where they saw people falling out of the clouds, people falling out of tall buildings and that would wake them up suddenly in the middle of the night and those dreams would happen again and again and again uh, they happened for several years as they grew up so the the psychic impact is, is part of it and um, it has to be the, the, the problem is that most of the investigators you know are trained in science and they want they want hard facts they want measurements. They want they want all of that, and they they don't. In many cases, they don't appreciate the the witness as a as a human instrument that has recorded much more than just the physical data, you know, at 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 the time. Um, in France, uh, France is an exception to that. There is a um, a UFO government research project in France uh, that has gone on for about 40 years under different forms and different names, but continually accepting testimony from the French public. It's not the military, it's the French Space Agency, which is a civilian scientific agency. So the files are open. Uh, except for the privacy of the witnesses, but essentially the the databases are are, are open. And uh, the reason I'm in France now, I'm in in, in Paris, as 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 you can see from uh, you know my uh, surroundings. But the uh, I'm I'm here to prepare for me an international meeting of the French Space Agency. Uh, f four weeks from now, where the six countries are going to be represented, uh, including a representative of NASA who is going to speak, you know, officially on the new openness within NASA towards the subject. Um, the other countries are 
you know, the UK, Sweden, Holland, Spain, and Italy, and Germany, and of course, France. Uh, comparing, it's a closed meeting. It's a meeting uh, of scientists who have submitted, you know, uh, testimony and submitted research. And it will be two very full days of, of analysis of, and in the US, uh, I've never heard anybody talking about what's going on in other countries. It's all about the Nimitz, you know, and the Nimitz, of course, is, is very interesting, but everything that was presented to Congress were military cases or formally classified cases that came from the government itself. 90% of the databases we have, and I speak in with knowledge of the databases, is civilian. It's not covered by secrets. Uh, it, it comes from, it is certainly covered by, by privacy and so on of the witnesses, but it's, um, it, it consists of observations by civilians away from military facilities. And as, as good as the military observations are, because of the, the instruments that they have access to, you know, you have radar, you have, you have infrared cameras, you have all of that, but the, those are limited to certain areas and certain situations. Uh, what about the other 90% of the data? I mean, when are we going to look at it? When are we going to look at the data around the world? You know, the, the U.S., the land occupied by the American public is 1.7% of the surface of the earth. Okay. Well, what about, what about the rest of it? You know, and can we study a problem, which is a scientific problem, by limiting it to formally classified military cases of the last five years in one small country? Yes, as I recall, you just said there are over 200,000 cases that you have in uh, a database. But that's only the beginning. If, If people were allowed to come out and and describe what they've seen, you would have much more. Now, there, there is, of course, a phase of the analysis of these databases where you need to purge all the cases that can be explained. And a majority of the reports can, in fact, be explained. So the, the, the scientists and the skeptics have, have a point there, you know, that those, those reports cannot be taken as as they come, they have to be somebody has to do an analysis that can be done by the way with AI. I've designed AI programs that can help you sift through the report from the witnesses and guide you. The AI isn't going to give you the answer, but the AI can tell you among 50 or 60 different possible natural explanations have you thought of this? Have you thought of asking this? Have you tested such and such a thing? And it can guide you towards a natural explanation in the majority of the cases. So when we say 260,000 cases, it doesn't mean 260,000 cases that you would send to the Academy of Sciences for them to review. 
out of that, there may be 20,000 cases that we could send to the Academy of Sciences for them to review. Now, the last time the Academy looked at a report, it was a common report, and they said there's nothing to it. You know, the subject doesn't exist. So I'm, again, I'm happy to have lived long enough to see the Academy reverse its, you know, uh, its decision on the phenomenon. I'm, I'm happy to be alive now. Well, even uh, the Condon Report itself, as I recall it, gosh, it goes back to the late 1960s, as I, I think. Uh, but even though the summary statement said there's nothing here, if you read the report in detail, it certainly seemed as if there were quite a few valid cases. Well, they had selected cases, and uh, the in their analysis, over 20% were certainly not explained by them. And uh, a case like Socorro, I mean, why didn't they look at Socorro? Socorro, you know, they had, the witnesses were still alive. Dr. Heineck was, uh, Dr. Heineck and I were the first two scientists who testified before the Condon Committee at the University of Colorado. We could have given them all the files about Socorro, but Socorro, of course, has remained unidentified, and the Condon Committee never looked at it. And they were, you know, they were close by. Now, if I remember correctly, uh, Condon himself, uh, it, it is now known, uh, had written a memo before he ever began the study saying that uh, that his intention was to basically uh, make sure that it got dismissed. But he thought that um, he would, that it was obviously, you know, not not a scientific subject, and that he was doing a favor. He was helping science by getting rid of the subject once and for all with his report. And I think he really believed that. Um, I had a couple of occasions of private conversations with him when when I was in in Boulder, and uh, he. He really thought that, well, somebody had to dismiss all this because it really wasn't very serious. It reminds me very much of the uh, AIR report about remote viewing. Uh, again, it seemed to be a deliberate effort to dismiss a, a very valid subject area. You know, in the, the two subjects are very similar. For It would be a dream for a sociologist to study the, uh, the the public reaction and the scientific reaction to anomalies uh, that you know in both cases, I, I believe as as somebody says in 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 our book that there, there are no anomalies in nature. You know how could there be anomalies? I mean nature is one thing, right? I mean things happen. And then either you understand them or you don't. And those we don't understand, we say they are anomalous. So it's a pejorative word that we use. But, um, you know, if, if you brought somebody from the days of Archimedes and you showed him the device we're using now to communicate, you know, across many miles, across an ocean and so on, uh, 
he would say this is magic, this is anomalous, this is a miracle, you know, it's going to go away and never happen again. And you and I know very well how this thing works, right? Very interesting. Well, before we close our conversation, I would like to uh, point out another aspect of, of your book that you went into largely in footnotes, actually, about a, a report made by the physicist Eric Davis, who had a lengthy communication with, uh, I believe it was Admiral Ray Wilson, Thomas Ray Wilson, if I recall correctly, uh, who had been in charge of military intelligence and began looking into the UFO uh, phenomenon, wanted to know what the military knew about it. He was a high-ranking figure in military intelligence, and apparently, although I guess he has subsequently denied it, he told Eric Davis that this was classified well above top secret, well above anything having to do with nuclear energy, but that the government has secretly uh, empowered corporations with large budgets uh, employing hundreds of people to try and uh, reverse engineer these recovered craft and uh, other technology associated with them. As you know, I'm a close colleague of Dr. Eric Davis. Uh, I have a very high admiration and respect for his his work in physics and um, and for the you know the the work that we did together uh, first as part of NITS in uh, Nevada and then on on the classified uh, project of uh, of Bass and Aiken. So I'm somewhat, uh, it's, it's, it's difficult for, for me as it is for him to talk very much about that. Uh, I can tell you that I trust Eric has an amazing memory, an amazing ability to describe situations from the past in very great detail. He's, uh, um, and I trust him. On the other hand, as you know, the, as you mentioned, the, the admiral has denied that the thing happened in that particular way. So I'm really not at, at liberty, you know, based on the fact that the project is still classified. You know, I don't think I should comment on my own opinion, you know, about the, about the situation. My, my hope, uh, is a hope of, you know, many of us, is that in in the development of the congressional action that there will be permission given to more people to come up and testify about what they know about what happened and so on and there are you know the public must realize that there are good good men and women who have been in highly responsible positions involving this phenomenon phenomenon for a very long time and that they have suffered the consequences in their careers. And again, uh, I'm delighted to, to see that the stigma is being removed and I'm grateful to Congress for doing this. 
Well, I think it would be fair to say, Jacques, given that NASA is currently involved in uh, launching a new moon rocket, which I understand is 15% more powerful than the last rockets that went to the moon nearly half a century ago, that uh, the effort to reverse engineer alien technology has at least not progressed so far that NASA is utilizing it. Again, uh, the question is going to be, and that was reflected, if my memory serves, uh, in the in the hearings we we saw, um, there was an argument that this really should not be shared with foreign countries um, because of the the potential that this could lead to breakthroughs in physics and, of course, breakthroughs in technology for the United States. Now, um, that's, that's an argument that I'm sure Congress is going to consider seriously. I also know of cases that should be brought to the attention of American science that come from other countries that are willing to share them but are still afraid of the ridicule, again, on the stigma that has resulted from the U.S. keeping the subject, uh, you know, at, at a level of, of ridicule, of public ridicule. And nobody, no astronomer, no physicist in France or Germany or uh, the U.K. or Holland wants to come out with a story that is going to be laughed at by the American media. It's going to be laughed at on CNN, on ABC, and on other, you know, other American media. So those files, uh, should be studied. They should be, uh, they should be pursued. They give us, just like the case of Valenzo, throws an extraordinary light on what happened at Socorro and what happened at Trinity. I happen to have investigated all three of those cases. You know, I, I, I know the witnesses in all three of those, of those cases. Now, the, the, if we, if we limit the data, and there are valid arguments why some data may have to remain classified, if only because the object was detected with a classified sensor. You know, think of the limits. We, we only know half of what happened with the limits. The other half is still classified, probably because of the, the sensors were advanced technology that has not been declassified. So those are, again, uh, there are proper arguments for keeping certain things classified and other countries you bet other countries are going to do the same thing. But what about the civilian cases? Can't we, or the, the cases that do not involve uh, security, national security today, can't we share that? You know, and I, I think that's a problem that Congress is going to have to, to face. Again, there were, I heard two different arguments in the congressional hearings that we saw, you know, very recently. One argument was we need to keep all that classified. One argument was we need to share this and, you know, open the doors and the windows. I know that 
in one of the promotional pieces for this upcoming conference at Stanford University on alien technology. The pitch for uh, selling tickets to the conference was that whoever can master this technology, whether it's a government or a corporation, will uh, in effect be able to rule the world. You know, there are lots of very bright people in in Silicon Valley and other places, and uh, uh, they certainly could be inspired by some of the things that witnesses are describing, but we're only at the very beginning of that, and I'm I'm a little bit, uh, you know, leery of uh, jumping to conclusions as we just begin the study, and very, very little of what I've seen so far involves the history of cases that goes back not only 70 years, but much further back. And, you know, people will have to take the time to to study that. The problem is that as we go on, more and more of those witnesses are no longer available. We're very fortunate to have, uh, you know, Mr. Padilla uh, alive with an excellent memory of his, you know, at age uh, 86 or 87. Um, but many of the, the other witnesses would like to interviewed from the days of Trinity have passed away. You also report in your book that it seems as if there was some sort of a covert effort to interfere with your investigation. I think in one case, for example, one of the witnesses whom you interviewed was received a mysterious phone call saying you wouldn't be coming. A few years ago, I would have been scared of that. But understanding... And, and this was not done by a, a joker. I mean, this is, this had to be somebody who had access to uh, phone lines and, you know, in his work or her work, uh, his work, because it was a, a man's voice. But, uh, you know, there are people who do that. Uh, and uh, so I'm, I'm not, you know, the, the investigation we've done is pretty open. So we were not uh, after the initial uh, surprise, we were we, we got used to that. That happened twice. You know that somebody called the witness on on our behalf and said we wouldn't come or we would be or something else was going to to happen and so on. So it's an um, interference, and that reinforces uh, you know our impression that somebody has been watching all along. And, uh, you know, we can only hope they are on, on, on our side. You, you also point out that at, at one time you went to visit the actual crash site of, of the Trinity crash and discovered that since the children had been there and how they remembered it, there was uh, poisonous plants that had apparently been planted just over that spot, were not really uh, found elsewhere in the uh, adjacent uh, parts of the ranch. Yes, and, and we know from the testimony of Sabrina Padilla, again, who was growing there as a little, growing up there as a little girl in the years after the the, the sighting, that uh, there was a, a, the large area where this took place was burnt. 
uh, as if to destroy any trace that might have remained of the of the crash itself. And so, um, yes, there was interference, and in people will, who in New Mexico who have investigated other sites will tell you that uh, those sites have been peppered with uh, metal objects, you know, beer cans and different mechanical devices and so on. And I've actually been with Dr. Nolan on on a ranch that was uh, absolutely peppered with metal, rusty metal parts of mechanical uh, engines that were uh, all over the place, rusting away. So that if you if you came there with a metal detector, you couldn't find the the, the things that may have been buried under the ground. So yes, so you know it's a, it's a silly game, but when we have the witness, you know we can uh, we can go beyond that. That's uh, um, it. It only. It's only an indication that something important happened there, important enough that somebody wanted to hide it forever. I suppose it means that somebody is studying whatever artifacts were retrieved and wanted to make sure that nobody else had the opportunity to study them as well. You know, that's fine. And again, that's understandable that you want to have first crack at the secrets on the other hand, over time, uh, you know, some of those, some of those things in, in scientific circles, people will talk after a while uh, or will seek advice uh, confidentially or openly. Uh, there is one part, uh, I've had several occasions where that, that happened to me. Uh, and I can now talk about it because uh, the man who told me the story has been dead for over 20 years, but he was a very distinguished um, leading engineer at um, a a three-letter, not a three-letter agency, but a three-letter computer company that is known all over the world through those three letters. And that now is the, the choice for you. But he was a man who invented the magnetic coating of memory, uh, memory devices, uh, thereby, you know, uh, earning literally billions and billions of dollars for the, the company who held the patents and, and still does. Um, he was picked by a project that must have been very close to what Colonel Corso was doing. And he was, remember the way those projects work is, is that they will parcel out different pieces of what they have. And they will, they will tell a scientist who is the, the world expert in that particular field. This was again, the inventor of magnetic memory for computers. Okay. <laughs> uh, that says a lot. And uh, we we had occasion to work on a particular project together. So he trusted me and told me that story that he was given a piece of something that I will not describe that he could not analyze, that he did not have the devices that would permit him to understand what that thing did. Now, he could analyze something about the structure, 
the structure was very sophisticated and it was obviously built for a purpose by somebody, but he could not find a use for it in industry, in American industry, and he returned it to the people who had given it to him and with with his report of his analysis. Now, there are a number of these people who would be, they were approached not as, not necessarily through their companies, they probably would have been approached as individual leading experts in a particular area to, you know, tell us what you think about this, you know, uh, what could it be used for? Uh, now, he was smart enough to know that it came from a UFO site, that it would not have come from, uh, you know, a Russian lab or an Israeli lab or a French lab. Uh, so he could he could see through that. But um, again, those things were, were kept secret. I think that uh, it's time to let, you know, American science and eventually, you know, world science opine on what those things could could do. Uh, remember the the object, we know quite a bit about the object at uh at Trinity, you know, uh, at least three humans went inside, uh plus the military, of course, who worked inside. Uh we know the characteristics of the dimensions inside. We know the the floor is flat. We know the the kids inspected the bottom when it was on the side on the on the trailer taken you know ready to be taken away. There was the the only space where there could be a propulsion system was about the size of the desk that I have here, you know, about five five feet, maybe six feet, and uh two and a half feet deep. That's all the space you have to put the propulsion system. There was no opening. There was no propeller. There was no jet. You know, there was nothing to see. How did it work? How did it plow a, a, a boulevard down the hill under power for half a mile? You know, the, 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 the people we interviewed on the ranch said it, it, it dug up something like five or six feet of dirt, you know, all the way down the hill under power. You know, an airplane would have broken up in, you know, a hundred pieces. It would stay there. That object kept moving. What was a propulsion? Somebody has that object. We, we still don't have any propulsion system that does that. You know, we're going back to the moon with pretty much the same kind of rocket we have. You know, when in Project Apollo, yeah. it's more reliable, I hope. <laughs> you know, it's better designed. We've learned a lot. We learned a lot about keeping people alive and functioning in those environments. We've done all of that in 50 years, but we don't have anything like those objects can do. Well, Dr. Jacques Follet, this has been a great privilege for me to be with you once again. Uh, the Trinity story is crucial to our understanding of the history of uh, the field of ufology. It's a very important piece of history. I'm honored that you've 
taken the time to share your work with me. And I hope that we'll have an opportunity to talk further because I know your your investigations have been going on for decades and, and decades. And as much as we've covered today, we've still only scratched the surface. But I want to thank you very much for being with me today. It will be a pleasure. Thank you. And for those of you watching or listening, thank you for being with us. Thank you.